If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. I mean, we don't know how much garbage we make, plastic we use, how much water, how much air pollution we create. So how are we meant to start changing it if we can't see the numbers? So I just thought this was the most exciting thing in the world I could ever do with my life, but to try and figure out how to measure all this stuff and get the data out and to show it to people. What if we can just tweak a few words in our messaging? and be able to immediately increase, even double or triple, the amount of action and change that we drive and inspire. Why should we go from looking at tackling public health, social, environmental issues as a fight, to just tapping into our own creative geniuses, as our guest today calls it? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like to receive weekly highlights from the podcast that can hopefully provide you with some inspiration throughout the week, you can subscribe for free at greendreamer.com. With that, you'll also automatically be entered to win our monthly giveaways. And I'm really excited for the upcoming one we have this month. So again, that's greendreamer.com to sign up. And now to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is an Australian American environmental engineer and software designer. Her company, Hello World Labs, applies data-driven gamification and behavior change techniques to solve the world's biggest environmental problems. For example, she's the creator of ZeroWasteDefy.com, an app designed to better measure and report municipal solid waste, and UrbanCanopy.io, a map-based application that uses spectral imaging of urban heat islands and green cover to encourage urban greening initiatives. Beyond this, she's also an author, YouTube channel host, media spokesperson on environmental issues, podcast host, board member of Australia's national eco-label called Good Environmental Choice Australia, and more. I was super intrigued, honestly, when I learned about her. She really brings a unique perspective to the table that I'm excited for you to hear and learn from. So without further ado, Green Dreamer, starting with what inspired her passion for the environment, here's Katie Patrick. 
Well, I grew up on a really beautiful property in a place called the Mornington Peninsula, which is a little bit outside of Melbourne in Australia. And so I was really lucky to grow up in this environment where we had gardens and trees, and I always felt very connected to that. Um, then when I was about 12 or 13 years old, which was in the early 1990s, there were a whole lot of really bad environmental crises going on. Uh, whaling was a really big issue in Australia. So every single night on the evening news, we would see pictures of whales, bloodied, har- harpooned whales. Mm. I remember being so traumatized by seeing this. Like I was like, how could people do this? This is horrible. Uh, and we also had this thing called the 40-hour famine. So there was a lot of marketing about uh, the the famines and the starvation problems that were going on in Africa. So you would also see images of these horrible, like, you know, skeletal starving children. So that was um, really moving. Uh, I also used to like to grow grow things. I used to grow vegetables. Um, there was another Muroa Atoll, a, a nuclear bomb testing of this place called Muroa Atoll, which is a uh, in the a sort of a Pacific island. And the French government were putting a, a nuclear bomb deep in the water to, to test it. So that was a big campaign in, in Australia. So there were these, um, there was a lot of environmental marketing around at that time. They're kind of a really serious doom and gloom kind. And that was kind of my foray into adulthood was being, uh, feeling these issues. Just I felt emotionally immersed in them. Like I was outraged that the world, that these things were going on in the world. And I became really hooked on them very young. And it just went on from there. So then what was the path that led you to becoming an environmental engineer and software designer? And what did these things entail? Well, environmental engineering is just like really a course to choose at university out of everything. I mean, you have to choose something, right? So you're looking through the course book. And environmental engineering sounded pretty good. I really liked science and I was good at good at math. So I just enrolled. But little did I know that environmental engineering... It's perhaps not the best career if you really want to change the world. It's more being a sort of a technician of pollution. So you might be like testing air quality uh, at a factory or doing uh, a sort of a pollution analysis of a new road that's being being built. It's, a, it's sort of a, the technical implementation of preventing pollution. So I ended up going into green building, uh, which was doing energy efficiency analysis of buildings. So it, in terms of the trade, it didn't really suit me. It was a good education to get, but I, I think like working as an environmental engineer was not really um, where my where my passion was. But it's a great kind of academic grounding to get in sustainability. But I was way too creative for environmental engineering. I mean, I was just thinking of like art projects and films I wanted to make, and I wanted to do documentaries and make magazines, and make sculptures that communicated messages. I was just my mind was just full of so many ideas. And environmental engineering is very, uh, like, socially very conservative. So I was really, really the odd one out. So I went into media. I started a media company. I wanted to make really cool magazines and rebrand sustainability. Back then, this was in the just around about the year 2000. Sustainability was not cool at all. It was, like, really, really boring, really not well-designed either just very scientific or very like sort of Birkenstocks and dreadlocks. There was none of this new fashionable. I mean, it hadn't broken out. It was like it had not been born. Fashionable sustainability did not exist. So I was so excited by the idea of like transforming it to being like really cool and fashionable. So I started a media company and we did that and it was a really great run. We kind of made this uh, kind of like Wired magazine or like sort of like Vanity Fair magazine for sustainability. So it was really, that was really cool. 
then everything just started moving more into software, like digital media emerged and print was sort of going uh, away. Was, uh, the, the industry was getting smaller and the kind of Silicon Valley vision of what you could do with technology started to emerge. And I got so excited about that. I was like, oh, wow, like what can we do with software? Uh, how can we make do things with computers, sustainability? And then I kind of lost interest in, I kind of already experienced publishing. I didn't feel like I had anything more I could really give to that space. I moved to Silicon Valley and I started wanting to design uh, sort of games and apps that could change the world in terms of like the designing the front end interfaces. And I found that I had a natural gift for it. So that's where that came from. That's so interesting. So is this Hello World Labs? Is that the software company? Yeah. So I started uh, Hello World Labs. Hello World Labs is basically me and my network of deep nerd friends and <laughs> behavioral and behavioral scientists. Uh, so to go into a bit more detail about that, what I found when I was wanting to design software and impact the world in a positive way, I thought, well, we really need to be measuring what we want to change. Like we need to see these numbers. And so I started making like a little thermometer that would be like an app that would go in Facebook. So I thought it'd be so cool if like on your Facebook profile, you could put a thermometer on it and the thermometer would be like red or green or it would go up based on how much electricity you were using. You could like hook the thermometer into your smart meter. Then people could like compete. You could see everyone's publicly see everybody's thermometers and it would kind of be like a game. And I was just like hacking around, you know, writing some code, see if I could build it on my own. And I realized that it was kind of impossible to get this feed of data. I was like, I really actually can't hack into the smart meter the way I want to and get the data. I don't know if we actually had a smart meter, but even if we did have one, and I started to think through all the other feeds of data. So this idea of getting the data in real time and showing it to you. So if you could see it, your electricity usage as a screen on the wall in your kitchen, how much water you were using in your shower in real time. Like when you have a shower, do you know how much water you used up in that one shower? No, it's invisible. What about how many trees are in your city? Can you look at an app and just be like, oh, yeah, our tree cover is like 21% or 14%. Oh, hmm, I wonder why it went up or down by 3% in this last year. Air pollution, what is your air pollution at your block, say with your kids at school, versus half a mile away? And the thing is that it changes block to block, address to address. All these environmental variables change. And the thing is we can't get any of that data. It's completely invisible. It's not collected or maybe it is collected and it's really hard to get. It's in a PDF document somewhere. It's hardly ever updated. I mean, we don't know how much garbage we make, how much plastic we use, how much how much water, how much air pollution we create. There is just no environmental data literacy yeah. or collection at, at all. It's totally invisible. So how are we meant to start changing it if we can't see the numbers? So I just thought this was the most exciting thing in the world I could ever do with my life, but to try and figure out how to measure all this stuff and get the data out and to show it to people. Because I think, and I thought I had this hunch that when you actually show people the numbers, like if I could make a little like screen or something that would go in the shower that would show you like how much water you used, or like a, um, a leaderboard screen that would go at the bottom of an apartment building that would show like how much your apartment, how much electricity you were using in your apartment compared to everybody else. I was like, oh, if I could start getting this data and showing it to people, yeah. I think that 
will change. And so I started looking through the academic evidence. I thought, well, I really have to prove this. It's not just a hunch. So I started digging into academic study after academic study to find the evidence that it worked. And I, and I did. I found so much academic evidence that this stuff works. So that's my, my passion. That's what I'm doing with Hello World Labs, working on those type of measurement-based apps. And uh, that's the sort of design theory that I've put into the book. That's kind of the backbone theory of the How to Save the World book. That sounds like it's really important because we need to be self-aware of our baseline in order to make any sort of improvement, right? Yeah, like you just need to know what the numbers are. I mean, in the academic literature is called disclosure or transparency. That's what they use. And if you think about, like if you want to look at the nutritional label on a food, you can see how much fat, calories, protein, etc., is on a food. Right, So that enables you to be able to, if you want to create a healthy diet, you can use that information. But one thing is not to forget, though, is that the information doesn't come by itself. The government has to enforce that. So if you're working as a social change activist, you, or what I think from looking into this space is that you want to focus on government legislation that mandates the disclosure of the data. And then once you have that in place, you can kind of leave it up to everybody to uh, react to that data and improve. Mm -hmm. And that's a much easier sell. It's quite, it's quite a different paradigm when you're thinking about rather than saying, okay, we need to ban these type of cars, we need to ban these type of power stations, we need to create all these kind of like micromanaging rules of telling people what to do, which could be very difficult and unpopular to get through whatever city or state you're living in. It's a different type of policy, which is just get the government to tell us to make the numbers transparent, just like they do with nutritional labeling. Same thing they do with car safety ratings. Put it out there and then leave it to everybody else to make the decisions. And then once you've got that mechanism in place, you'll start that the industry starts kind of competing with itself to always improve their score. The cars are always trying to get safer, so they get their safety rating up. People are feeding into that loop as well, always trying to buy the, the more safer cars. And so you get this kind of virtuous upward spiral going on with that uh, public disclosure of data. Do you think info overload would become an issue if there's just so much data out there and because people like simplicity and might be overwhelmed? Yeah, I think the art of it is designing it in a really simple way. So, yeah, I think it would probably be wasted if it was really complicated and hard to understand. If you think about design, right? So this is where it gets exciting on the front end as a, as a designer. The simplest thing you could do is just use like like a traffic light system, like green is good, red is bad. That would be the absolute simplest way to communicate something. And then you've got uh, maybe like stars. That's when you've got five categories, five stars. And then maybe you could use five or five colors. You know, um, fire hazard, how they have that dial. And so you can show where something sits on the dial. Uh, or then you could have like a percentile. You know, like whether you're in the, you know, out of 100, like the 73rd percentile or the 99th percentile. So you can have various ways of communicating data very simply. Even A, B or C, that's what they do with restaurant grade cards. There's just three categories you fall into, an A, B or a C. Or maybe there's a fail as well. But it's not giving people giant spreadsheets of data. It's just reducing the data into a very simple communication um, means like a star or, or a letter grade. For sure. So we have all this information and it is really important for us to get this message across in like a very effective way. So there's an art to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's even a very complicated art. It's just measuring it 
Uh, I mean, it might actually be complicated when you want to get a real project off the ground, but the design theory is quite simple. You measure it, you put it out in a way that people can see as publicly as possible. You make it easy to design. In my book, I do, I have about 10 different uh, gamification design. There's this big gamification design chapter where I just go through them one by one. I'm like comparison. How you, can you com- compare one person's footprint versus another, like a big balloon and a little balloon? What about a leaderboard? If you've got like five groups of people or five households, put them in order from top to bottom. Uh, then going into color, you can make a color grade of like five or ten different colors on a spectrum like you'd see on a like on a, a heat map, you know, how, how the traffic is really bad and it goes like crimson, mm-hmm. applying color. Uh, you can do things like give people rewards, like little stickers, like digital or real stickers, like an um, – you know, like a cherry sticker if you do well or like a strawberry or like a happy face. Like that really works if somebody's doing well. You can do that digitally or just with like a pen and paper. Uh, or even like emotive animals. Like this one study that was really cute found that it tested um, people doing a learning exercise and they had an owl with like no facial expression and then they tested another owl that was smiling and the one with the smiling owl did 23% better on the test than the one with the just owl with no expression. Wow. So putting these like cute kind of animals or cute <laughs> expressions create this positive experience. So people are like, oh, look, cute owl. And that just makes them more emotionally open and in a better mood. So in that emotionally open space, you're able to absorb more information, which is actually a really good um, little message for environmental communication that, uh, making people feel happy and open makes them more absorbent to information that if you freak people out and frighten them, they tend to close off. And so it's just, it's going moving into the reward um, part of the brain. If you imagine that the brain wants to be, craves to be rewarded. So giving people smiles and ticks and um, sort of happy things to enforce kind of like that carrot uh, way of teaching people. Uh, kind of taps into that reward system and makes them start to want more and more of that reward uh, rather than maybe some old school styles of environmental messaging is saying like, we're all going to die, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, we need like a bit of that so people actually know what's going on but it doesn't need to be like the whole picture. You know, it just needs to be like a little slice of the, of the pie. Well, we definitely have to check out your book, How to Save the World to Learn all of these things. And I'd love to hear from your research and writing process for the book, what was your biggest aha moment? Uh, I actually quite recently, I'll I'll just go with my most recent aha moment because I actually remember it. When you have to write something substantial or communicate something big, what I do is use this uh, hero's journey template, which is like a 12-step process that they kind of use in most big Hollywood films to, to tell a story. Uh, but when you're telling nonfiction and something like environmental sustainability, which is a little bit removed from the human experience, you have to tell it in the context of what is the deeper human nature for why someone should care. I've just been thinking a lot about how to um, tell the journey of why people should care about the environment in a way that's more compelling than just, you know, you should just care about the environment. What I found was really uh, sort of compelling and exciting was to tap into one's own creative genius, to get away from this idea that you need to sacrifice yourself. That You know, making the world better is this big sacrifice that you have to, like, go without and you have to be a martyr. 
and then you have to like fight this big enemy, you know, this big like horrible political party or this like horrible big oil or big coal or whatever. You need to forsake all of your own personal desires and dreams. I really don't like that style and I don't, I don't think it's healthy. But what I, I do think is really exciting is that everybody has like this own creative genius zone, their own creative energy. And that what we need to do is not look externally to the world about what to fight uh, but to look internally into our own creative space and to ask yourself, what do I really like to do? What do I love to do? What am I really good at? What makes me like light up? Uh, what do I want to do every day? And if I never had to worry about time or money uh, or even about the world dying, I would just want to do this thing and share it with the world and to really like get in touch with that space. Mm. It might take a long time. You might need to practice for years to really like figure out what that space is inside you. But to do that and then um, really get in touch with that creative genius space, but then apply it. That's the thing. Not just do it in a vacuum, apply it to making the world better. And it's when you put it through a kind of a almost like utilitarian kind of function of applying your creative genius to the world, you can like magnify it and then do some real good. Yeah. So for us as people who are so passionate about sustainability, what do you think having this mindset shift from seeing this as a fight to just being driven by our internal passions and energy, what does this mindset shift make possible for us and the work that we do? I think when we lean into our own creative genius zone, when we're like, okay, what, what, what's kind of my calling to do here? We can kind of tap into the or find our place in this slipstream of how uh, technology and creativity is constantly evolving in this flow. We're not holding back from it. Like if you're not kind of in that space and seeing it that way, you could be just really holding back and not being effective. You know, you're like, oh, I'm afraid of technology. Oh, I'm not really a creative person. I don't really know what to do to create change. You know, maybe it's all sort of the government and the corporations. They're controlling everything. You move into this disempowered mind space. So you're not really contributing to this forward momentum. But if you start to think that way, you start to think that there's this incredible flow of, of technology moving forward and then you're like, well, how can I find my place in there, then you can start inventing things and doing things that you never thought was possible. I mean, seriously, 10 years ago, I didn't think I could write code or move to Silicon Valley or get funded to build software. And I just made the commitment to like dive into it. And I've been able to do all these things that I would have never have thought I could have done. Uh, you know, I built some software for the University of Santa Cruz with their garbage trucks, uh, and I can solder together like electronic parts and figure out how to, um, you know, put put hardware together. And when you start to think that way, just all of the opportunities and the imagination uh, can come to you. Your your mind is completely open. And what the world needs is ideas. We need technological innovation and we need ideas and we need creativity. I mean, that's what the headspace that everybody has to be in. Like the world's not going to get better if we all just like sit around with bad ideas uh, that aren't very creative and we just blame everybody else for the world's problems except ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. we're the ones who... It may not be our fault that the world is in bad shape in some ways, but we're the ones with the ideas and the creative energy to make it better. Like nobody else is going to make it better except for the people who come up with great ideas and put them to work. So we really have to activate ourselves and step into the driver's seat and think about the things that we can contribute and the things that we can create for this world. Yeah, but in a really creative, expansive, visionary way, you know, like like what can the world be? Like what could it become? What is our I have a dream speech for the world? Yeah. Like when we think about the world in 100 years, it could be the best possible world. 
Like, what are we thinking about and activating? Not just fighting, not just, oh, you know, the Koch brothers like support um, climate change and our science. They're terrible and we're going to fight it. I mean, that'll only get you so far. I mean, obviously, that is a fight that we need to have, but ultimately, we need something much bigger, which is to catalyze our imagination and ideas uh, into action that will involve some technology developments to make this world happen. You talk about um, how most fields of study involved in change, like environmental science, engineering, and law, none of these degrees really teach the principles of social influence, and that is so key to inspiring change on a massive scale. So overall, what have you learned from your research in terms of what it takes to really make change happen? You're right, but it's true. I mean, people do, people who want to create change as a young person will enroll in something like environmental policy, environmental law, or environmental engineering, environmental science, and you'll learn those degrees, but you won't actually learn how to create a movement. Mm. One of the key themes in behavioral science to create change is this idea of social norms, that we all copy each other. Like Like if you go into a party and you see like everybody sitting down, you'll probably go and sit down. Or if you go to a party and everybody's like wearing black, but you're wearing like bright pink, you'd be like, oh no, why did I wear bright pink? When like, it was like one of those, everyone's wearing black parties. We have this really strong nature to want to do what everyone else around us is doing. And so we will unconsciously copy everyone, both consciously and unconsciously copy what everybody else is doing. So that's part of like the numbers thing that I was talking before. Like if you see, you know, what the average number is, you'll want to fit closer to the to the average uh, in what people are wearing. You'll start to wear what they're wearing. So the way that we can word, if we're wording an environmental campaign, if you say something like, you should stop using paper because of trees, like that's one message, right? Uh, You should say you should stop using paper because it's expensive or you should stop using paper because you'll be a good person. All of those three messages I just gave don't, really tap into the social core of human connection that humans ultimately care about how they're connected to other human beings like that's the the basic nature of the human mind is how do other people perceive us our relationships our friends our families are we liked by everybody are we fitting in are we popular the strength of those that social fabric so we need to think about social change in terms of how are we fitting in to that. So the message that does work with the social norms is when you say uh, four out of five people have stopped using paper. Mm. And so when you look at that, you're like, huh, four out of five people stopped using paper. I'd better stop using paper too. That's like a really strong driver for people to change. But the kind of abstract ways of feeling like carbon dioxide or trees that are far away and kind of invisible just don't get to the motivational core the way that these social uh, messages do. There's another really great example from one of the podcasts I did of the um, guy called Greg Sparkman. He's doing a PhD in how to get people to eat less meat. And he found that when you tested groups of people, he found that people lining up at a cafe, he said about 17% of them would order a vegetarian meal just, just randomly, just if you did nothing at all. But he said if you got people to read a sign that said an increasing number of people are going vegetarian all the time, it didn't say like, oh, some people eat vegetarian. It actually said that the number is increasing, like there's an accelerating rate 
kind of like saying, there's this trend that's happening, kind of like, like everybody's starting to do it. Because not that many people are vegetarian, right? So you couldn't be like, hey, 1% of people are going vegetarian. That wouldn't work. That would do like the opposite effect. But what you can do is focus on like basically high growth from a small base, right? Uh, and then it instantly doubled. Like you weren't asking people to go vegan or vegetarian. You were just saying, hey, like more and more people are trying this. And so people are like, huh, oh, like that's the trend. Like, you know, and the little unconscious messages, oh, I've got to be on the trend. So these really simple ways of wording mechanisms can like double or triple the impact that you're having. Another one is just like showing people the numbers. Like one of the examples in the book is like if you just put a sign up above a recycling, like paper recycling or can recycling, I think the paper recycling one that actually shows you how much, like, you know, how many papers were recycled, it went up by 77%. Wow. Just by putting the number. And the can was similar one. I think the can was like 60 or 70%. It's crazy. Just these little interventions, once you start to understand how people work, start to have these really big measurable results. But if you just say recycle because of the earth, it's just not kind of relatable. You don't want to hope the earth is relatable, but it's just not nearly yeah. <laughs> not relatable the way that what everyone else is doing around you. Whatever you're working on, ultimately all things can be divided into two halves of measurement and behavior change. Like firstly, look at that. Like if you've got a project, you want to make sure that you're measuring what you want to change in real world numbers and that you're getting that data back. And second half is if you want to change people, you have to do it through the lens of a behavioral scientist. Like you have to think about, okay, this is like a person that we have to get to do a thing. And I see projects all the time that do neither of those things. And if you're not doing either of those things, then you're probably not making any impact at all. So that's just like the first kind of step. Um, and one of the, the techniques in the behavioral science bit of my, of my book, which is great, everyone should learn how to, how to do this, is called user story mapping or user behavior mapping. But you just like do a little diagram, like you draw a little stick figure of the person that you want to impact. If it's like a student or a corporate person or maybe it's like a, a parent, you'd be like that person wakes up in the morning and then they have breakfast and then which step along their day are they going to do this action that you want them to do to recycle or to donate or to plant a tree or to tell their friends something or to buy the zero waste enabling thing uh, and then they go to bed at night and so you map out this stick figure flowchart of the person and then you identify exactly at what point in their day they're going to do the action and then you figure out how to intervene to get them to do that action at that point in time. So if it's like, say, like composting, you wouldn't be like, let's get everyone to watch a documentary on composting because there's this thing called the value action gap that means even if people watch a documentary on composting and they really care about it, it doesn't lead to people composting. Like education is very weak at causing people to act. Mm. But if you do the behavior map and you're like the point at when people need to compost is when they are having their lunch. So you're in the kitchen, work or student, home kitchen, and what we need is a sign. Maybe we will change the lid size. We'll make the compost like have a big lid and the trash ban have like a little tiny lid. It's like really hard to get the trash in. So you don't want to put it in. And we'll put the compost bin up front and the, the trash bin behind uh, and maybe we'll put like an angry face on the trash bin and we'll put like a happy face on the compost bin. And maybe we'll get really creative and make the top of the compost bin just look like a big tomato with like a smiley face on it. So it's really <laughs> fun. But this is real. This has actually been studied and it works. It's, yeah. it's actually in, a, in an environmental psychology lecture. So you're actually looking at the intervening in the space of how to make the behavior happen 
rather than taking this like educational view, which is I think what most people have done in the past is thinking that education changes people when it's it does a little bit but not very well and not as much as if you look at the behavioral way of doing it. So would you say that ultimately inspiring change on a massive scale really boils down to us understanding how people are wired and understanding their lifestyles, understanding what drives them in order for us to know what approach to take? Yeah, you've got to look at people through the lens of behavioral science. I mean, there are great books on it. There's one called, you can look them up on Amazon, there's one called Influence, which will help get your head around it. I have like a few examples of this in my book, but there are other other books that go into more detail. Uh, there's another one called Creating Behavior Change, or oh, I think that's the title of it. It's a really good textbook. Uh, there is a popular one that's called Hooked, which is more about like software. I'm not really that into that book. But there's another really good one called Fostering Sustainable Behavior by Doug McKenzie Moore. It's quite a short book, easy to read. Anyone in sustainability should totally get that book. Uh, it'll take you through a whole bunch of case studies. And just look up on YouTube about um, behavior mapping or user story mapping and start to think that way. So you can start breaking up the individual behaviors and then build up your campaign around the, the actual thing that you want people to do. For sure. We'll be sure to link to those resources in the show notes. And for now, what's next for you that we can look forward to and support? Well, just my, my book, it's been years in the making uh, and it's got a lot of really interesting techniques in it and I'm really excited to share it with the world, especially with uh, from what I think your listeners are like. I think they'll really, they'll really go for it and I'm excited to share the optimistic vision that we're all here to create an amazing world. Mm. We're not here to just like stop the world dying. We're here to build something amazing and that's a hugely exciting and creative journey. So I'm I'm really excited to get out there as a voice to talk about this because I really genuinely feel it and I've always felt it. And I would really like to help my, my, my brothers and sisters in this social change space get out of that negative headspace if they're in it and move them into this cr really creative, positive, pro-action space. I love that. Well, where can we go to uh, check out your book, follow you online and on social media? Uh, you can go to my website, Katie, that's K-A-T-I-E, Patrick, katiepatrick.com. And if you want to sign up to my website, I have a whole bunch of free downloads with some more details about this kind of techniques that I'm really interested. I also have a podcast called How to Save the World, where I actually interview behavioral scientists and go into a much more detail about some of the topics that we've touched on here. So if you're really serious about sustainability social change nerd stuff want to go deep that's what this um what my podcast is for getting really into the nitty-gritty of it i'm just at katie patrick on twitter and i'm at katie patrick hello on instagram um and i have a facebook group also called how to save the world if you want to like have a chat with me directly i'll always respond to anyone who comments or posts anything on on the facebook group but it's all on my website katiepatrick.com is a good starting place Before we go into our final five, I wanted to reveal another detail about our 2019 Green Dreamer planners that'll likely launch in December. I've mentioned they'll include all of our major environmental awareness days to keep us on track, that there'll be one easy self-care and sustainability action step we can take and cross off every single week, and that there will be yearly, quarterly, and monthly goal-setting guides that I put together based on the research of what it takes to actually accomplish our goals. And the new detail I'll share with you 
is that you know we inevitably sometimes feel more motivated and sometimes less motivated, sometimes slow and just uninspired. It's definitely okay and necessary to have those moments, but to help us get through them more quickly, I've also sprinkled some inspirational and motivational quotes throughout the planner, including some from our past guests. Hopefully, this will be another gentle way to keep us inspired and activated throughout the year because we really need you to thrive in every way that you can for you, for your loved ones, and for our world. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you for planning out your 2019, make sure to sign up for our newsletter at greendreamer.com, where I'll be making the first announcement when these limited planners launch. For now, though, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? Uh, I love Stephen, Stephen Pinker, who writes The Better, Better Angels of Our Nature. He studies the data about how everything is getting better, socially anyway. Mm. The world is on a great upward spiral. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I, when I get sort of fuddled and mixed up, I just go back into the creative genius zone. I'm like, what do I do that's creative? What makes me special? What kind of, if I'm just an artist, what do I want to do in the world? And then I just go back into that space and then I create something and then I feel great again. What's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? I drink hibiscus powder, in huh. uh, which is high in antioxidants because I believe it stops, it stops aging. I need so that's that. great. Antioxidant, <laughs> antioxidant powder. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Uh, I think I've already do kind of everything I can. I, I eat a pretty close to vegan diet. I try my best to be zero waste. Uh, but one thing I hope to achieve in the next 12 months is getting an electric car. I have a fuel car at the moment. I really, really want an electric car. So hopefully I'll be able to do that soon. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Ah, uh, everything. I mean, I live in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and there's just so much exciting stuff happening. I mean, there's technology breakthroughs happening all the time. This whole social change movement that we see now, it wasn't here 10 years ago. Remember, I've been doing this for nearly 25 years since my early teens, and it's grown so much. All of the certifications and the not-for-profits and the conferences, seriously, this wasn't here 10 years ago. I mean, the movement is vibrant and alive. So every time I connect with anybody who's uh, doing something interesting in the space, it's, it's just exciting. I, I love the community. You just need to look around and keep your eyes peeled, for keep your eyes open for all the good things that are happening, and you can just see just good stuff everywhere. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Just get into your creative genius. Give it time. Set a schedule and a timer every single day, whether it's one hour, and if you're really generous, maybe you can even get three hours in, of just being like, what was I creatively put on the earth to do? And just time it and realize that that's the most important thing to do with, with your life. Like when, when you, when all the answers come through, through doing that, I believe anyway, that's what, what I think. Get into your creative genius zone. I love that so much. What were you put on earth to do? What are your strengths, skills, interests, and talents that you'd like to contribute to this world and really leverage? What makes you the most creative, inspired version of yourself? Just some questions to think about and food for thought. How can you tap into your creative genius to support yourself, your loved ones, and this world? 
Green Dreamer, and thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview, as well as links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 80 for episode 80. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane. That's K-A-M-E-A-C-H-A-Y-N-E. And finally, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.